Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're on episode 25, which features Langwani, the other Monte Cristo, and a key to unlock Ladysmith. After spending some time in the West, where Kimberley has been relieved, and Free State Boer General Cronier had surrendered with 4,000 burghers, and that was after a fortnight of retreat, entrenching, and then being bombarded at Paderberg Drift, our gaze shifts back to Natal in the northeast. 26 kilometres outside Ladysmith along the main railway line from the port of Durban to Johannesburg and then the prize Pretoria, General Buller was fulminating. The garrison at Ladysmith was weakening daily as a result of bombardment, inadequate food and disease. Buller resolved once more to make an attempt to reach the beleaguered town. He spent hours viewing the heights across the Tugela River that had thwarted his every attempt at crossing and marching onto Ladysmith, and that was over the last three months. However, things were looking up. Buller had a strange bond with his men. We have seen, with the benefit of hindsight, what a disastrous leader he really was. But at the time, his men thought he'd been given an almost impossible task with a force too small, while Lord Roberts lorded it up in the west of the country with 40,000 men around Kimberley. And Buller had also had an epiphany. He realised the key to Ladysmith was a new kind of mobile warfare, an offensive counterpart to the Boer defensive tactics. The old three-part act, artillery, men charging with bayonets, cavalry chopping up the fleeing enemy, in a day was over. The trench and magazine rifle had put pay to this anachronism finally in Buller's mind. It had taken thousands of British dead, but he did actually stumble on the truth of modern war, and from this moment the Boers were doomed around Ladysmith. A modern battle was an interlocking series of engagements spread over a vast area and taking days and even weeks. He issued new orders about how to advance over broken ground, how to use boulders, copies, trees, anthills. Use individual initiative, take cover. Pretty much modern warfare 101. But a revolution in February 1900. Crucial to this discovery was the role of artillery. No more fire a few hundred rounds as the opening salvo, then mop up. Their role now was to provide constant barrages over days and to creep forward from a position firing further and further into the enemy as their own men advanced. This was practicing for the First World War and the Second World War and even Vietnam and other more modern conflicts in Afghanistan, for example. After some time, Buller's gaze shifted to Valgrant's Hill and the eastern reaches of the mountain range that lay between the British and Ladysmith. He suddenly realised that the barrier of hills were at their narrowest, with open country lying beyond in the east. Buller was also feeling more bullish, if you excuse the play on words, because by early February 1900, British reinforcements had arrived, artillery, cavalry and infantry, and these reserves totaled 2,400 men, as well as eight large field guns. Buller's force now numbered 27,000. Facing him were fewer than 8,000 Boers. Black scouts employed by Sir George White and also Buller had discovered that the Orange Free State troops had been withdrawn to head west and help fight Roberts's huge army near Kimberley. The Transvaalers, however, 
remained in place, gravely outnumbered, but steadfast and determined. Way across the Tugela and behind Boer lines, Denise Reitz, the 17-year-old burger, wrote, For a while, the success at Spionkop went to our heads, and we thought that the English would be sure to make peace. But again, the days came and went with no sign. Not only did it go to the heads of the men, the commanders were also in some sort of false moment. General Louis Boerter, the brilliant Boer commander who'd spent the last few months defying a force more than three times his size, decided he needed a break, and then he headed off to Pretoria for a little R&R. Denise Reitz reports that his three remaining brothers then arrived to help fight the war against the British. The eldest, Helma, was 20 and had been studying law in Holland when the war broke out in October 1899 and managed to make his way back via Portuguese territory to the east. The other two, Arndt and Jack, aged 16 and 12 respectively, had been at school but managed to persuade their father to let them come to the war. Jack only lasted a few days before General Marula spotted him and ordered him home, realising he was a child. Reitz and 800 others were then roped into a secret special commando, which was told to ride east, hire Isizulu guides, and then attack key points in Natal. But the Isizulu refused, ironically preferring to spy for the British, and the Boers could not force these isolated villages to change sides. As Reitz writes, The Zulus showed no fear of us, and refused to serve as guides, for they sided with the British, which they'd always done. That was only partially true. However, there were instances where the Zulus turned out for the Boers too. Yet, after five days of fruitless riding, they received a message to return to Ladysmith at once. The British were moving, and this time it was no centipede. General Buller had ordered a new road to be built. You have to admire people from this era. The general in charge of a section of an army builds a road. He wanted a steep hill at Swartkop, used as a gun emplacement uh, for the artillery. After sending up a hot air balloon to view the route, construction on the 25-kilometre-long road through rocky and rough country began on 27th of January 1900. Five days later, the road was complete, which allowed the heavy guns and ammunition to be moved between the railway line and Swartkop on the 2nd of February. And unlike previous occasions, Buller had an attack plan ready. The area most in danger was that held by Facht General, or Combat General Tobias Smuts and his burghers, not to be confused with Jan Smuts. He began to notice the British assembling in their thousands. The key to the combination lock of Ladysmith had been spotted. It was the fact that the Tugela River cut a 12-kilometre-long gorge through the hills to the east of Colenso, which isolated the Boer left flank on the south bank on the river. In other words, the other side of the main army. This was Hlangwani Hill, where so many incidents had taken place over the past few months. It was the hill where Dundonald had attacked during the Battle of Colenso in December. There were two reasons why it was a tricky proposal at this point. First, Hlangwani was difficult to traverse with its thorn bushes. Secondly, it was only 500 foot high and was commanded by a series of tangled wood ridges to the east, culminating in the thousand foot ridge known as Monte Cristo. That name was to be revisited in the Second World War in Italy. But right now in South Africa, it was to prove a crucial point in the coming battle. Buller was now wide awake and told his officers there was no other option. 
They'd tried the direct route via Colenso and had been roundly defeated. They'd tried through the west, through Spionkop, and had been roundly defeated. It was the only option left. This time Buller was going to move point to point instead of multiple points. First use the heavy guns to bomb the Boers out of their frontline trenches, hammering and squeezing them hill by hill, moving from Hassa Hill to Tengolo to Monte Cristo and then Hlangwani in a succession of eastward moves. Forty well-paid Isizulu scouts were employed by Buller and his field intelligence head, Lieutenant General Arthur Sandbach, who was nicknamed Sandbags by these men. One of the reasons why the Isizulu preferred the British to the Boers was simply they were paid better. They also recognised the value of working with a mighty nation and were pragmatists. Even as I say, some fought for the Boers. The 40 included many old men who would move almost unnoticed through the felt, ignored by the Boers as these old men shuffled along. But they were alert and taking mental notes. I'll load some of the images of these men on the abwarpodcast.com website. So if you head over there this week, you'll see the images. Nondescript perhaps, grey-bearded, but crucial to the British cause. Hassa Hill had of course been named by Buller's men because the grassy wave in the felt was a small pimple of land where the 13th Hussars had been surprised six weeks before, leading to two men killed. After the Issy Zulu scouts reported back, the Cape Town volunteers were let loose, followed by that Morning Post reporter Winston Churchill. Riding along with these was Winston's brother Jack Churchill, who was then suddenly shot out of his saddle by a Boer Moza round. He'd taken a ship out to the war and had only arrived at the Natal front that very morning. Now he was shot, but in the foot, which may be symbolic of the Churchills and the British process up to now. Luckily, Jack was not seriously injured, but his South African adventure had been cut short. It was 36 degrees centigrade during the day in the shade as the British moved eastward. On the 3rd of February, Buller ordered the attack to begin. But the day before, the Boers got wind of this new attack and were digging trenches along the Tugela Heights from Spionkop, that hellhole of violence, to Valkrans in the east. Louis Buter was away, and his fellow officers were in a funk. The usual problem now faced these soldiers. Would the men decide to flee or fight? Remember, the military situation with regard to what the British would regard as treason, that is, for individual soldiers to decide whether or not to fight, was normal for the Boers. General Tobias Smuts, not to be confused with Jan Smuts, sent a telegram to Boerter on the 4th of February, which read, Urgent. Attack expected early tomorrow. My position, as you know, precarious. Cannot get reinforcements. Commander General Riobet seems to think request for help due to lack of faith or cowardice shall not persist further. We shall do our duty and God help us. Glad you are coming. At daybreak on the 5th of February, two British cavalry brigades left their bivouacs at Spearman's farm and moved to their allotted places, guarding the flanks of the coming attack. They were being directed by Buller, who Imperial Light Infantry Lieutenant Colonel Grant reported... Is fortunate in at least one of the attributes proper to a general, huge, heavy, solid, and reliable to look upon. He conveys to the imagination something of that comfort derivable from the sight of a big gun or a strong entrenchment. Not so the chaplain, who was called upon to provide succour one Sunday before the upcoming battle and reported on by Winston Churchill, who was not himself particularly religious. 5,000 men had gathered before the chaplain on that Sunday morning, and Churchill writes, 
Life seemed precarious in spite of the sunlit landscape. What was it all for? What was the good of human effort? The bridegroom opportunity had come, but the church had her lamp untrimmed. A chaplain with a raucous voice discoursed on the detail of the siege and surrender of Jericho. The soldiers froze into apathy, and after a while, the formal perfunctory service reached its welcome conclusion. Over the next seven days, the advance resumed, faltered, resumed. By Wednesday, the 14th of February, Hassa Hill had been reoccupied by Dundonald. Then, the next day, Buller threw his right punch by moving Littleton's division crabwise into the Green Hill, which linked Hassa Hill to the next main target, Kingolo Hill. Heavy guns were dragged up to Hassa, and Buller now had 34 guns on that tiny hill, including two new 5-inch Royal Garrison artillery guns rushed straight to Natal from England. The Boers had eight guns facing the British 50 guns. What an unbalanced moment, and one which the Boers were fully aware was not in their favour. But the British continued their eccentric ways. For example, one Major Corwell took up his seat in a deck chair beside one of these five-inch guns. He said to give the Boers a chance to shoot him. This time they must. Then General Warren ordered his bath moved into the open during a Boer bombardment of Hassa Hill, and then climbed into it, and then climbed out of it, wrapped a towel around his waist, and received a message from Buller. These are surely strange moments. By the following Saturday, the British, in Churchill's words, had a gigantic right arm, its elbow on Hassa Hill, its hand on Kongolo, its fingers, the regular cavalry brigade actually behind Kongolo. Now for Monte Cristo. On Sunday, the 18th of February, 600 kilometers away to the west, the lunatic Kitchener had ordered his suicidal attack on Pardeberg that killed over 200 of his men. On the same day here in Natal, Monte Cristo was taken. Lieutenant Crossman, in command of H Company, led the battalion of West Yorks to the top of Monte Cristo. It was also his 23rd birthday. And he writes, The hill was awfully steep, and at the top, at the center, for about 50 yards was sheer cliff. It was an awful climb, huge boulders all the way and of bullets and whiz-bang as a shell would go over you and down would go a man. We neared the top. Poor old Bernie was shot clean through the head. To the north and below them, riding quickly in support, was the Boer teenager, Denise Reitz, who describes what happened next. A bombardment more violent than that of yesterday broke out ahead of us, and we saw a ridge on which lay the Bethol men going up in smoke and flame. It was an alarming sight. The English batteries were concentrating on the crest that it was almost invisible under the clouds of flying earth and fumes, while the volume of sound was beyond anything I have ever heard. He reined his horse in along with 800 men half a kilometre away, unsure of what to do. What do you do? Mounted on a horse when you suddenly feel the force of an industrial revolution decimating the very earth ahead of you. They saw the British infantry swarm over their colleagues, and next moment a rout of burghers, as Reitz says, broke back from the hill, streaming back down towards them in disorderly flight. The British soldiers fired into them, bringing many down as they blindly ran past Reitz and his mounted unit. He remarks, For this day marked the beginning of the end in the Tal. 
The British had blasted a gap through which the victorious soldiery came pouring, and wherever we looked, Boer horsemen, wagons and guns went streaming to the rear in headlong retreat. Two days later, Buller stood on the summit of Monte Cristo himself, now the master of the south bank of the Tigela. The Boer retreat was so sudden, they'd left lock, stock and barrel, including their pom-pom shells, sacks of flour and other food, and their Dutch Bibles. The 19th saw Llangwani fall to the British, and heavy guns were now placed on the highest hill in the area. Colenso was open. It was a tactical victory. However, once more, Buller made a mistake, which even the Boers realized. He didn't send the cavalry through to charge the retreating burghers. Raids noticed this and says, It was lucky indeed that the English sent no cavalry in pursuit, for the passages across the river were steep and narrow, and there was a frightful confusion of men and wagons struggling to get past. Churchill said that now success was a distinct possibility, a classic understatement, but after the last few months, perhaps warranted. What else would the Boers do now, he thought. Well, the first part of the route to Ladysmith was unlocked. The problem was how to open the gates between the Tigela and Ladysmith itself. Remarkably, the British now walked into Colenso, which had been evacuated by the Boers. And equally remarkably, the first train in months steamed into Colenso that very evening, the 19th of February. It was a grim sight that faced the men. Nine weeks earlier, at the Battle of Colenso, so many of their colleagues had died. The skeletons of Colonel Long's artillery horses, harnessed together in a macabre silent dance, lay just under a kilometre from the river. Remember that disaster all those weeks ago? where Buller had sent young Freddie Roberts on a suicide mission. His father, Lord Roberts, was about to relieve Kimberley, but his son was long dead. Buller had almost doubled back, as Colenso lay to the south of Monte Cristo. His men wondered what would be the new plan, the new orders. Colonel Acor, one of his staff officers, pressed Buller to move forward directly towards Ladysmith. However, he had created a problem in his rush east, there was no way he could move his heavy guns further north without cutting another road upon which to drag them. Worse, in Ladysmith, the men were listless and now almost out of food. Disease had ravaged the town, cholera, dysentery, influenza. For months they had lived a pendulum existence, swinging from hope to disappointment and back again during each of Buller's attempts at rescuing them. Buller is a myth, wrote a soldier in the town by the name of Cecil Tim. And Private Steinberg wrote, Very near starving and hardly any boots or clothes on. Their bodies were rotting along with their equipment. Sir George White, the officer commanding of Ladysmith, was more specific but not less depressed. His journal featured an update on the 19th which read, The siege has now lasted longer than the siege of Paris, fast approaching Troy. Then on the 20th, a Boer heliographer, clearly a cricket fan, signalled the town from Bulwana Hill and the heligraph message read, 101 not out. Quick as a flash, a member of the Manchester Battalion signalled back, Ladysmith still batting. But the jokes had worn thin, as Thomas Pakenham, the great historian, notes. We'll leave these heliographers at this point and return next week to talk a little more about what had really been going on in Ladysmith for the last few months. As you'll see, what happened there would lead to an intense inquiry after the war. It was so dreadful. So join me next week for episode 26 of the Anglo-Boer War. 
Remember to rate the show on iTunes, please, and send me a direct message on Twitter if you like, at Des Latham. We also have a website which can be found at abwarpodcast.com and our Facebook page is at Anglo Boer War Podcast. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. Hoe breng mij terug naar die oud Transval, daar waar mijn zaren woont.